Welcome to Introduction to Feminist and Social Justice Studies. This is the third audio episode of the semester-long course for the Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist and Social Justice Studies program at McGill University, taking place in the fall of 2020. My name is Dr. Alex Ketchum. I'm your professor for this course. I'm joined by three teaching assistants who are graduate students at McGill University. Our teaching team will lead you through the materials of this course. Today's episode will focus on the terms sex and gender, two, talk about social construction and define it, three, discuss our first reading, the introduction to Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez, and four, finish with the podcast by becoming a discussion of what is feminism and what is social justice. Let's get started. Today's song is a section of the menial melody by the band Sing Sing. This version of the song comes from the band's 2017 appearance on NPR's Tiny Desk concert series. The band Sing Sing comes from Korea. They sing a regional folk style called menial, and the lyrics come from around the 15th to 17th centuries in much of their music. The band pairs these lyrics with a variety of musical influences. I've included a link to their full appearance in the transcripts for the lecture. You'll notice the band attired in gender-bending clothes. The gender-bending look has to do with shamans, not glamour. As singer Hee Moon Lee describes it, in Korean traditional art, male shamans, called baksu, have the body of a male, but as mediums, they need more than a single sexual identity because they're channeling both male and female spirits. When I act a female character and sing, I have to overcome the fact of my being a male surikun, singer, and try my utmost to bring a more neutral, unisex feeling to the performance. It sounds silly, but I feel like going back to the sensibilities of my youth when I liked Madonna helps." End quote. In the article Sing Sing Dance Dance, playing on gender in Korea's 21st century traditional performing arts by Jocelyn Clark, a Pai Chai University of South Korea, Clark writes that gender identity would seem to be more settled in the world of traditional Korean music and dance than any other corner of the world of performing art. Classic gagog songs are divided into female and male repertoires, and women and men both dress in the gendered costumes of the Joseon Dynasty Hanbok as they perform ultimate expressions of Korean moral rectitude. The story of the faithful wife the filial daughter, the benevolent brother, the loyal minister. But a closer look reveals that gender roles in the old forms are not quite so fixed. This is particularly true, and increasingly so, in Korea's traditional folk genres. Clark explores the way that musicians such as Hee Moon Lee of the band Sing Sing are pointing to fluidity in gender and gender roles. I provided an open access link to the full article in the transcript if you are interested in learning more. Although our course focuses primarily on the Canadian and American context, 
I chose music by the band Sing Sing for today's song because I want us to consider the ways that ideas of gender can be culturally dependent and also the ways that the gender binary is a social construct. First things first, let's define some terms. To begin, what is essentialism? The idea of something being essential is that it has an essence that is natural or has inherent or innate characteristics. Essentialism is a theory that there are innate or inherent essential characteristics. This idea is important to understand when we look at debates within feminism. Perhaps at one point you have heard the phrase, gender isn't essential, it is socially constructed. So then, what is social construction? There's actually a long intellectual history of how we get to the idea of social construction, but let's leave that for another time. Social construction is the concept that something doesn't exist independently in the world with an inherent essence. Rather, it is an invention of society. Society constructs it. Thus, social construction. Society puts the meaning onto it. Cultural practices and norms create social constructs and impact the practices, customs, and rules that impact the way we use, view, and understand them. As a society, we act as if they exist, and because of our acting as if they exist, in a way they do, but there is nothing essential or inherent. Okay, so we've got essentialism versus social construction. This enables us to discuss sex and gender. So, what's the difference between sex and gender? Oftentimes when speaking, people will use the terms interchangeably, but there are differences. At some point in your education, you may have been taught that sex is the scientific division between male and female bodies. You may have been taught that sex is just based on genitalia, or you may have learned that sex is the classification of people as male or female at birth based on bodily characteristics such as chromosomes, hormones, internal reproductive organs, and genitalia. Within that later definition, you learn that sex is determined by quite a few characteristics, it is the thing written on your birth certificate by a doctor or medical professional. There is still an assumption with that definition, though, that sex is a biological fact, as male or female, that there is something inherent or essential about it. Gender is then positioned as socially constructed. Gender here then becomes something that is determined by society and culture within a binary of masculine or feminine. Here, I want to disrupt this division as sex as strictly biological and not socially constructed at all. Don't worry, we are also going to disrupt the gender binary too, in a bit. First, in defining sex as male or female within a binary, a chunk of our population is left out. Intersex individuals. So, what does intersex mean? I'm now going to quote at length from the Intersex Society of North America's page, what is intersex, as their definition is quite robust and accessible. In the transcript, I will also provide a link to the ISNA website. Intersex is a general term used for a variety of conditions in which a person is born with a reproductive or sexual anatomy that doesn't fit the typical definitions of male or female. For example, a person might be born appearing to be female on the outside, but having mostly male typical anatomy on the inside or a person may be born with genitals that seem to be in between the usual male and female types. For example, a girl may be born with a noticeably large clitoris or lacking a vaginal opening, 
or a boy may be born with a notably small penis or with a scrotum thus divided, so that has formed more like labia. Or a person may be born with mosaic genetics, so that some of her cells have XX chromosomes and some of them have XY. Though we speak of intersex as an inborn condition, intersex anatomy doesn't always show up at birth. Sometimes a person isn't found to have intersex anatomy until she or he reaches the age of puberty or finds himself an infertile adult or dies of old age and is autopsied. Some people live and die with intersex anatomy without anyone, including themselves, ever knowing. Which variations of sexual anatomy count as intersex? In practice, different people have different answers to that question. That's not surprising because intersex isn't a discrete or natural category. So what does this mean? Intersex is a socially constructed category that reflects real biological variation. In the same way, nature presents us with sex anatomy spectrums, breasts, penises, clitorises, scrotums, labia, gonads, all these vary in size and shape and morphology. So-called sex chromosomes can vary quite a bit too. But in human cultures, sex categories get simplified into male, female, and sometimes intersex in order to simplify social interactions, express what we know and feel, and maintain order. So nature doesn't decide where the category of male ends and the category of intersex begins, or where the category of intersex ends and the category of female begins. Humans decide. Humans, today typically doctors, decide how small a penis has to be or how unusual a combination of parts has to be before it counts as intersex. Humans decide whether a person with XXY chromosomes or XY chromosomes and androgen insensitivity will count as intersex. Okay, so here we see that the divisions between male, female, and intersex are also socially constructed. Humans are deciding what biological characteristics will be counted when we consider sex. Later on in this course, we will talk about the role science and the medical profession play in our lives and our conceptions of gender, race, disability, and more. Sex, then, is still affiliated more with the conceptions of the body, but it's important to think about the way that these sex categories are also socially constructed. It's important to remember that these understandings of sex are historically situated. Have you ever heard of the one-sex model? Historian Thomas Lecure, in his book Making Sex, Body and Gender from the Greeks to Freud, argues that in the West, from the ancient Greeks until the 18th century, the one-sex model was dominant. In this model, all humans were one sex, but that women were lesser versions of men. Women had the same reproductive organs as men, but then they were just flipped inside out and existed inside the body. So to clarify, this is a way people were conceptualizing of the body. Now, there have been arguments between historians about how dominant this idea really was and during what periods of history this idea was contested. However, I bring up the idea of the one-sex model to remind us that the social construction of sex is also culturally and historically dependent. So, what then is gender? Gender refers to the socially constructed roles, behaviors, expressions, and identities of girls, women, boys, men, and gender-diverse people. It exists on a spectrum, where some people identify as more masculine, more feminine, or non-binary. In April 2020, the Canadian Institute for Health Research updated their definition to include the information that gender influences how people perceive themselves and each other, how they act and interact, and the distribution of power and resources in society. 
Gender identity is not confined to a binary, girl, woman, boy, man, nor is it static. It exists along a continuum and can change over time. There's considerable diversity in how individuals and groups understand, experience, and express gender through the roles they take on, the expectations placed on them, relations with others, and the complex ways that gender is institutionalized in society. I provide a link in the transcript to that page. Gender is dependent on society and culture. While the gender binary dominates much of Western culture, we can see examples of cultures with multiple genders. For example, the Bugis people of Indonesia recognize five genders. They're the Hirja people of India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Nepal. The Zapotec people of Oaxaca, Mexico, recognize the existence of a third gender called Muje. The term Two-Spirit was created in 1990 at the Indigenous Lesbian and Gay International Gathering in Winnipeg and specifically chosen to distinguish and distance Native American First Nations people from non-Native peoples. Two-Spirit is a modern umbrella term used by some Indigenous North Americans to describe Native people in their communities who fulfill a traditional third gender or other gender variant, ceremonial and social role in their cultures. It is used for general audiences instead of traditional terms in indigenous languages for what are actually quite diverse, culturally specific, ceremonial and social roles that can vary quite widely, if at all, within certain communities. Across the globe, across cultures, and over time, there have been a wide variety of understandings around gender and how many genders exist. Within Canada and the United States, the gender binary of man and woman still is quite dominant. Cisgender refers to someone whose personal gender identity matches with their assigned sex at birth, such as on their birth certificate. So, if your birth certificate says you are a female and you identify as a woman, you are a cis woman. Transgender refers to someone who identifies as a gender different than their assigned sex at birth. So, if your birth certificate says you are a female and you identify as a man, you are a trans man. Some people prefer to identify as a trans man, and some people prefer to identify as a man. Gender non-binary, gender queer, gender fluid, and agender are a spectrum of identities that exist outside of the man-woman binary. As you can see during today's lecture, there are many terms and definitions. It is important to respect the ways that a person self-identifies and refer to them in the way that they prefer. An individual may identify themselves differently over time. If you do not know how someone identifies themselves, you can respectfully ask them their pronouns so that you do not misgender that person. Pronouns refer to he, his, she, her, or non-binary pronouns such as they, them, or z, here. There are a variety of pronouns that people use. Gender is not the same as sexual orientation. Gender is not indicative of sexual or romantic desire. People of all genders can be gay, straight, bi, pan, or queer. People of all genders can be asexual or aromantic. Asexual can refer to someone who does not have sexual attraction to anyone or low or absent interest in or desire for sexual activity. It may be considered a sexual orientation or lack thereof. An aromantic person experiences little or no romantic attraction to others. We'll also discuss these topics in more detail throughout the course, but I want to introduce the terms to you at the beginning of the course, just so we can keep building off of this discussion. So, gender performativity. You may have heard the idea that gender is performative. This idea comes from feminist theorist Judith Butler. 
I did not assign Butler's text in this course because it is quite dense to read and can be quite confusing. It might be a text that you decide to return to at another time. In the transcripts, I have included a link for Judith Butler explained by Katz. This comic might help make sense of the concept of gender performativity or confuse you even more as it draws out some key quotes from Butler's classic work, Gender Trouble. The key concepts of gender performativity are that performativity is not the same as performance. I know it's confusing because the words are very similar. Butler is not saying that gender is something that we are just pretending to do. Rather, Butler argues that gender is something that we do. Gender is an action that we constantly do in our day-to-day -day lives, subconsciously. We learn how to do gender from others and others learn how to do gender from us. It is in the daily, it is in the daily doing of gender that we create, that we as part of a society and as a society socially construct gender. So even though gender is socially constructed by all of us at all times, it feels real. It is constituted through repetition and ritual. Don't worry if this seems confusing. We aren't going to dwell on this concept right now. It's pretty likely that you'll read Butler again in your other courses. I just wanted to introduce you to this concept. So now let's talk about the first reading that you have done for this course, besides carefully reading through the syllabus. You did that, right? You read the syllabus? Good. Okay, so our first text is the introduction to the book Invisible Women, Data Bias in a World Designed for Men by Caroline Criado Perez. She argues that data is fundamental to the modern world. From economic development to healthcare to education and public policy, we rely on numbers to allocate resources and make crucial decisions. But because so much data fails to take into account gender, because it treats men as the default and women as atypical, bias and discrimination are baked into our systems, and women pay tremendous costs for this bias in time, money, and often with their lives. This is one of the book options for the first round assignment in case you want to read the entire book. So you might be thinking, Dr. Ketchum, you just spent the whole first part of the lecture talking about the way that gender is socially constructed and the problems with thinking about gender as a binary. Why did you assign this book? I assigned this book because while there are many issues with thinking about gender as a binary, much of our lives in Canada, the United States, the UK, and elsewhere are impacted by this binary understanding of gender solely as a binary of men and women. This binary is socially constructed, but this also has the effect of still constructing many parts of our society. And as Criado Perez discusses in the book, men are treated as default. Much of our world is designed with men as the neutral, the default. Women are seen as secondary and non-binary people who Criado Perez does not discuss, discuss much in this book are viewed usually as non-existent or absent. Oftentimes, gender is not taken into account in design and research, and when it is, the binary is what is considered. In the introduction, she talks about the way that this understanding of men as default is reflected in language in media, in our money, in our textbooks, in sports, right? There are soccer teams and then the women's soccer team, right? You don't say the men's soccer team and the women's soccer team. It's the men's World Cup and the women's World Cup. No, we hear the World Cup and the women's World Cup, right? So 
to back up in the introduction, she talks about the way this understanding of men as default is reflected in language, in media, in our money, in our textbooks, in sports, in video games, and in what is considered canon. She discusses the way that education focuses on the history of men, films focus on stories that center men's perspectives, and more. She says that this sometimes happens intentionally and sometimes through unconscious bias. In this book, she focuses on the way that research is rarely done on women and that this leads to a gap in data on women. She writes, The presumption that what is male is universal is a direct consequence of the gender data gap. Whiteness and maleness can only go without saying because most other identities never get said at all. But male universality is also a cause of the gender data gap because women aren't seen and aren't remembered because male data makes up the majority of what we know, what is male comes to be seen as universal. It leads to the positioning of women, half the global population as a minority with a niche identity and a subjective point of view. In such a framing, women are set up to be forgettable, ignorable, dispensable from our culture, from history, from data, and so women become invisible. The rest of the book details the way that this lack of data on women is harmful and can lead to injury and death of women. One example is the way that protective clothing and gear, such as PPE, being designed around only men's bodies, particularly white men's bodies, means that rarely fits women properly and puts them at more risk in the workplace. This makes women doctors and nurses more vulnerable to disease when dealing with patients, and we can see this with the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. Construction workers be more vulnerable to workplace industry, and soldiers more likely have vests that do not actually protect them from being stabbed. We can see the impact of Reference Man, a 5'9", 155-pound, 25-35-year-old man that Criado Perez writes about all over society. If you're interested in learning more about the impact of Reference Man and want to hear Criado Perez be interviewed amongst women doctors and researchers such as Dr. Fatima Kodi Stanford and Dr. Argavan Sals, who are having issues with PPE, I have included a six-minute clip of the Full Frontal with Samantha B. show that focused on Reference Man from June 17, 2020. You can also learn about the lack of women CPR dummies in the part of the interview with designer Jamie Robinson. The book primarily looks at the gender binary, with occasional discussions of how race is a factor, though there is not much discussion in the way that Black women experience the data bias differently than white women, or the other kinds of factors such as disability, age, class, immigration status, etc. We can also think of the ways that non-binary and gender queer individuals are harmed by a lack of data collected on their experiences. It is not a topic that Criado Perez goes into detail, yet it is an important topic. In this class, I want us to be aware of the issues of thinking of gender as a binary, while also being aware that the gender binary thinking shapes so much of our culture and society, and this binary thinking impacts men, women, and non-binary folks. So this brings us to the question of what is feminism? It's part of the name of the course, Intro to Feminism and Social Justice Studies. So what is feminism? One definition you may have heard is that Feminism is a collection of movements and ideologies that share a common goal to define, establish, and achieve equal political, economic, cultural, personal, and social rights for women. There are some things I like about that definition and some things I don't like. Yes, feminism is definitely a collection of movements and ideology, but feminism goes beyond that definition. 
I prefer a more intersectional definition. Feminism is a collection of movements and ideologies that work towards the social, economic, and political equity of all sexes and genders across the spectrum, not just the gender binary. It is intersectional, it is anti-racist, anti-sexist, anti-ableist, anti-heterosexist, anti-classist, anti-ageist, and trans-inclusive. It includes considerations of the environment and environmentalism. It takes into account oppressions on the basis of race, class, gender, sexual orientation, age, disability, immigration status, ethnicity, language, and more. So not all people who are lumping themselves into feminism match up to that gender, but it's one that I like in terms of a feminism that we're striving towards. We'll also talk about intersectionality more later. People of all genders can be feminists. So one thing you may have noticed in that definition is that I use the word equity. You can see in that definition, I prefer that there is the word equity instead of equality. Equality implies the idea of sameness and fairness. Equality is treating everyone the same. Equality aims to promote fairness, but can only work if everyone starts from the same place and needs the same help. Equity, however, works towards justice. Equity is about giving everyone what they need to be successful. It acknowledges that there are differences between us. So why not just humanism? You may have heard someone say, I'm not a feminist, I'm a humanist. You might wonder why feminism is important. I want to give you an example. Think about the difference between hashtag all lives matter versus black lives matter. People who say Black Lives Matter aren't saying that people of all identities don't deserve to live. What they're doing is drawing attention to the way that the structural racism in our society treats Black people's lives as if they're not, that they're unimportant or that Black people are not fully human. The hashtag and phrase bring to the forefront issues of sexism and gender discrimination that be marginalized, rendered invisible, or sidelined if not named. We have terms with specific definitions to draw attention to specific types of oppression. Feminism also brings attention to issues of sexism in society within an intersectional understanding of feminism, how issues of racism, ableism, heterosexism, and other forms of oppression impact the gendered experiences of people in our world. As feminist writer Bell Hooks writes, feminism is for everybody. As this course's introduction to feminist and social justice studies is important to also have a working definition of social justice. Social justice works toward a more just, equitable society. Social justice maintains that all people deserve and should have access to the same rights and resources. I'm drawn to Rawls's understanding of justice and it guides the ways I think of social justice. I want to give you a hyper-simplified version of philosopher John Rawls's principle of justice from his 1971 book, A Theory of Justice. So imagine for a moment that all of us are floating above the earth. You can think of this as our souls, our essence, however you'd like to conceptualize it. Now imagine that you randomly will end up in any body, in any situation, in any part of the world. In our current society, with large social injustices, depending on what body you end up in, your life would be very, very different. Sure, you might end up in the position of someone like Bill Gates, but it's more likely that you will end up in a position in which you're housing and food insecure. 
However, in a more just world, everyone would have housing, healthcare, education, food, and safety. Sure, there might be differences between people, but if everyone had the opportunity to not just survive, but thrive, it wouldn't matter so much which body you zoom down into. Rawls describes what he calls an original position, in which, and I'm quoting him here, no one knows his place in society, his class position, or social status, nor does anyone know his fortune in the distribution of natural assets and abilities, his intelligence, strength, and the like. I shall even assume that the parties do not know their conceptions of the good or their special psychological propensities. The principles of justice are chosen behind a veil of ignorance. So Rawls basically says that we want to create a world in which no matter what body you zoom down into, you know that you'll be able to have access to what you need to thrive. Like I said, this is a simplified version of Rawls's work, but it can help us conceptualize of what a just world could or would look like. I want to end today's lecture by saying that we will continue to discuss the meanings of terms throughout the class in order to make the course more accessible. I also want to empower you to do further research on the topics that you might be interested in, as again, this is just one introductory course and there's so much we could cover. I know that I've talked about a lot of material and a lot of terms today. I want to remind you that you can always refer to the episode transcripts and I highly encourage you to do so. In addition to making the transcripts in order to make the course more accessible for students who are deaf or have difficulty hearing and students taking the course in a second language, they're also a resource to return to when you want to look things up. They provide links for further watching, listening, and reading. They're also useful for your quizzes. I recommend that you take notes on the transcripts themselves if that is a useful practice for you. I also don't want the use of terms to be a form of gatekeeping. Some of you might be encountering these terms for the first time. Everyone is in a different stage of interacting with these materials and concepts. Be gentle with yourself as you learn to use these terms while being respectful of people's identities. When you make a mistake, work to not repeat that mistake in the future. Within our class, I'd like us to enter into these conversations with positive intent as we work through the material and be generous with one another. However, it is also important that we accept each of us responsibility for the impact of our words. We must hold ourselves accountable to the harm we may cause, even if it is unintentional. There will be times when we experience discomfort, as growth and learning can be uncomfortable. Within our class, let us try to call one another into conversation rather than calling someone out. There will be times when we make mistakes. If someone takes the time to talk to you about a mistake, especially if something you said or did was hurtful or harmful, understand that they're being generous with their time and energy to speak to you. This is all part of learning and growing, but also part of learning how to be accountable to a community. The processes of learning and unlearning are lifelong. On another note, material throughout the semester has the potential to be triggering. While we will not be discussing sexual violence explicitly until episode 21, I want to acknowledge that all different types of material can be triggering. We'll be working with material discussing sexism, racism, heterosexism, classism, colonialism, and other forms of oppression throughout the semester. As the required materials for this course are asynchronous and can be accessed through audio and transcript format, please take the time to take care of yourself as you work through the material. Feminist and social justice studies courses require more than reading books, taking tests, and writing papers. There is an emotional component to this work, emotional labor. In the next episode, we'll, we will be talking about the history of feminist movements in the U.S. and Canada.
Our lectures will involve terms from a variety of languages and cultures, sometimes from languages that I do not speak. I'm listening to native speakers pronounce the words before trying to pronounce them. However, my pronunciations are still imperfect. All the videos, songs, images, and graphics used in the podcast and transcript belong to their respective owners, and I do not claim any right over them. The opening bell sound is schoolbell.wave from 13F Panska Stranska Michaela, and the closing bell is from Inspector J's Bell Counter A-Wave of freesound.org. Fair dealing is an exception in the Canadian Copyright Act that outlines the permitted unauthorized use of copyright materials for specific mandated purposes. In Canada, these purposes include research, private study, education, parody, satire, criticism, review, or news reporting. For research and private study, education, parody, and satire, no re- special requirements are required. For criticism, review, and news reporting, the source and author must be named to constitute fair dealing. There are no advertisements. This podcast is for educational purposes.